I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About a full super coven of Weber warlocks and witches. About shifters. About the bleeding colors of a rainbow coalition. About magical, rare, and unknown shifters. About the vague evilness of Chinese communism and Islam. About the political maneuverings of the paramilitary and extrajudicial forces. It's about the bachelor, but make it the triwizard tournament. Uh, It's about faded mates. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. As you may have noticed from that perfectly executed ourselves, Isabeau and I are back in the same room. Back in the saddle again. (laughs) You literally look like you're in a saddle because you have to straddle this giant pillow. This is what's comfortable for me right now. This is how I'm supposed to be sitting for my blower back in sciatica. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, don't make me feel fucking weird about it. Well, no, now I feel like I'm sitting poorly. Your sciatica doesn't have to be a critique on everybody else, Isabeau. It's not, Morgan. Why are you making it about you? I feel personally attacked by your sciatica right now. And I feel like you just like drop that knowledge and you don't even think about how it affects the people around you. My sciatica, you're right. I didn't think about how my sciatica would influence the way you sit in your seat. My bad. Oh my god. My mistake. Intentions versus outcome. <laughs> Just like The Bachelor. Exactly. Intentions versus outcome. This week we are discussing The Bachelor in Paradise by Shy or Shay August. A rare and unknown romance. Uh the rare and unknown series is I think a shifter series that takes place over reality TV show program similar to The Bachelor. It also takes place in the real world of the rare and unknown shifters, which is on Earth, but like a different Earth, because as Morgan alluded to, there is the communist party in China that they're dealing with, as well as the Ayatollah in Iran that they are dealing with. It's weirdly political for a show (laughs) termed The Bachelor in Paradise about rare and magical shifters. Um, But, you know, what you can do. It's also weird for a show that doesn't do anything with the fact that there's a Chinese Communist Party or an Ayatollah. I will grant you that it doesn't do anything with the Ayatollah, but I would argue that the Chinese Communist Party's political moves do feature especially in the first part of the novel we'll talk about it but first let's tell our listeners what the book is about i have the about the book pulled up do you want me to read it i do morgan should i no i won't do a nabokov impression what if we made that part of our show i think we'd have to switch to other famous literary talents it can't just be nabokov lights camera deception disaster despair rule of threes who that's not in it. Zi Sing, the Asian alpha of the rare and the unknown, is suffocating under the role he's played for the entirety of his adult life. Perfect son. 
For far too long, he's allowed others to dictate his choices and lifestyle, but he refuses to allow them to dictate his choice of mate. Behind the scenes of his season of The Shifter Bachelor, the pressure mounts as seemingly everyone points him toward the woman he least wants, but who makes the most politically expedient choice. The lady he sees himself with may not be the best political match, but she is the best match for his heart. Can he convince her that love doesn't have to be perfectly choreographed to work? Can he convince himself? These are great questions that anybody who wants to participate in a reality TV show guaranteed to find them a love match should ask. It's true. So I'd like to start with my own ignorance. Uh, Part of the reason (laughs) that I chose this book is because I saw Bachelor in Paradise and I was like, oh, I know that that is a spinoff of the Bachelor series and Morgan knows a ton about the Bachelor series. Wouldn't it be fun to read a shifter romance set in a universe and vocabulary that one of us was familiar with? So that's why I saw this on Twitter and was like, Morgan, we got to do this one. (laughs) So Morgan, for me and our listeners, would you kind of give us a sociological overview of the last 25 seasons of The Bachelor (laughs) and its offshoots in seven minutes or less. Oh my god. I feel like seven minutes is kind of a lot of time. It is. I because I want you to I want you to be free with it. So I think we are all somewhat familiar with The Bachelor and the Bachelorette franchise. For me personally, there are some key points in the history of the show. When we get the first season, it is The Bachelor. I think like the show is so different from when it was back then. Every female contestant, uh Every woman vying for the bachelor's hand was, I think, within three or five years of his age. Uh, Season one, the bachelor had an advanced degree, so I'm pretty sure every contestant also had an advanced degree. He fingered someone in a sushi restaurant. There wasn't any explicit rule about, like, no sex until fantasy suites. Great. It's important that we nail down some of the rules because they do apply in the novel. Yeah, and I think it's also important to nail down that when this show started, like, What we understand, like, I think The Bachelor has become this fully formed universe with, like, rules that only exist in that show and only make sense in that show but are so rigidly adhered to that should someone, like, stray from them, it's it feels cataclysmic as a viewer. Like, it feels like something as, uh, imagine having sex with someone on the third date. Who would, who would fault you for that? In the world of The Bachelor, if you have sex with someone, sometimes even in the fantasy suite, and it comes to light, are you out of your mind? It's a whole other universe. It's everything dialed up. Like, all of our most, like, conservative ideas of romance are ratcheted up to 11. Our id about romance and love and monogamy is all in complete and full play in The Bachelor. And that's why I think these rules, as we understand them today, came to exist. Uh, The first season of The Bachelor, you see like social norms. So like one of their earliest competitions, air quotes, was they had to meet The Bachelor's married friends, which I think is anyone who like dates in the world today, meeting the couple's that your partner considers successful or likes to spend time with is a huge deal. And they asked the women questions like, how many children do you want? Where in the world do you want to live for the rest of your life? Like normal person questions, like normal getting to know this potential mate of a friend of mine questions. Exactly. 
nowadays on The Bachelor, it's very much like these vague gestures. Like family is so important to me. Nobody has those like hard conversations about like, do you plan to work uh, when you're married? Which were the kinds of questions that were asked on that first season. Which was over 20 years ago now. The first Bachelorette comes because America finds the first runner-up for The Bachelor that we want to find happiness. And that person remains... I think a totem, Trista and Ryan is the couple. I do believe they're still married. I do believe she's a conservative mommy blogger now. So then we get to what are we going to do? We have all we have this whole stable of people who have gotten used to being semi-famous. How can we make money off of them? The answer is bachelor pad where a bunch of losers from The Bachelor and Bachelorette went to live together. I think the first season was in a ski chalet and there was like an indoor jacuzzi. And they had to do like embar- like survivor style competitions to win money. And the ultimate prize was something like $10,000. Oh my God, that feels so little in terms of like reality money now. It's a joke. <laughs> and it was kind of a joke back then. And it was clear that everyone was just there. But it started the like Bachelor in Paradise structure of like, you have to pair off. Like someone has to vote for you in order for you to stay on. Interesting. But Bachelor Pad evolved into Bachelor in Paradise as we know it today, which was super controversial recently because one of the contestants alleged that she was too drunk to consent to have sex with another contestant and that the producers did not intervene on her behalf. And they filmed it, which I think is one of the things that I... As a total neophyte, I've seen exactly three episodes of The Bachelor and it's over 20 year run. But I understand it as a juggernaut because I feel conversant in at least some things. Like I know what the rose means. Mm -hmm. So I understood its allegory in this text. I understood that there's like a first round of meeting where you either choose to be super earnest or play a character. Your whole point is to be memorable. So I could see how it was working in this text. Although this text is, I would say, pretty liberal. This is actually quite complicated and gets into the world so I building of this text. Kind of predict where that this you was have the shifters, third book in the series you have it's witches, called Bachelor in Paradise. You have shifter sure witches, enough, the first which book is are the often shifter dark bachelor, magical creatures and then it's the who are prone that to I am demagoguery. Sure that this That's is a the third direct one. quote from the text. Eight. Number eight. This is number eight in the series. So this is quite down the line. Oh. Holy cow! Because this is the Asian alpha. It takes place in the South China Sea. So they go continent by continent, but there's only seven continents. This is actually quite complicated and gets into the world building of this text where you have shifters, you have witches, you have shifter witches, which are often dark magical creatures who are prone to demagoguery. That's a direct quote from the text. Um, And you have the alpha alpha of the universe named Rashad Junaid, who was the first shifter bachelor and he found his fated mate and then it kind of goes from there and so there are shifter alphas in each quadrant so it's not per continent although we do have the asian alpha but then there's a russian alpha a scandinavian alpha an alpha from new jersey so there's not a one-for-one alpha situation per the continent also it's not bachelor in paradise right because it's not a bunch of other contestants they're all new yeah um but the contestants are chosen by very specific matchmakers which i think feels like an allegory to the producers how does one get on the Bachelor, Bachelorette. The most important step is your audition video. 
where you have to just kind of show who you are. And I think they have like a pretty short time limit, but it tends to be understood that you should show that you have, you fit into an archetype, um, which is something that developed over the years uh, once we got our first villain, Courtney. Um, So we have villains, we have audience ciphers, right? Who you're like, why is this person still here? Oh, it's because I relate to them. Like there needs to be someone on the show who's like, this is weird, right? Because that's what's happening. Uh, You need to have like the clear winner. You need to have the dark horse. Like, so you have to demonstrate that you're a certain, and you also have to demonstrate that you uh, look a certain way. Up until recently, that very much included being white. Uh, And it's honestly still pretty racially narrow on the television show. Um, but you also have to have some sort of sob story or like what you understand as a sob story. I think anyone who has watched The Bachelor has realized that, um, (laughs) hardship is relative. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so you have to demonstrate that via an audition tape. Um, and then the producers will contact you and, You'll get, I believe you get flown out to like a convention center and you have to do a series of really strenuous interviews with producers. Um, And then you have to go through like, once you're selected, you do have to go through like media training. They tell you things like, we don't want you to hear, we don't want to hear the word journey when we're talking to you. There are no-go words that have become cliche and so... The producers don't want you to say them. You also have a specific producer assigned to you who will be handling several contestants. In a lot of ways, like, they're there to, like, help you, but also they're there to help the narrative of the show. So they do ask you strategic and pointed questions. They let you get away with a certain amount. That's something I've noticed whenever I've read, like, oral histories or memoirs of The Bachelor is that these people really think that they have more control over what they're doing. Um, than they uh, actually do most of the time. I think that was one of my favorite parts of this text. Abs, 100%. Right? Like the backstage producers who are trying to like deal with the personalities of contestants. But also there's this thing that happens in the book called Orchid or Nah, which is the talk back show after The Bachelor airs, which... I'm sure, like, this is after the rose? Yeah. Okay. Because in this universe, it's orchids, not roses. Um, Because shifters. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Um, But there are a couple of points where we have two commentators who have to run interference with all of these other commentators who, like, hate each other and are, like, about to flare into their shifter persona, into their animals. So we've got these three matchmakers who all have Greek goddess names. There's Hera, Athena, and Persephone. And they're triplets, and they're matchmakers. And daughters of Cupid. The Cupid. And they're also wolf shifters. Yeah. And then you have these other soft, like, softer shifters who are also commenting we have two feng shui experts who were brought on by this specific bachelor because his grandmother believes very strongly in the importance of feng shui 
Right. So cool thing about this bachelor, no one could be born outside of the year 1987. Mm -hmm. And September was a particularly bad year or bad month in that year, which I think is interesting. Like that's never happened on The Bachelor where you could only pull from one year. No, absolutely not. (laughs) Absolutely not. So the feng shui experts and the daughters of Cupid do not get along very well. And so they're a series of producers where we get to be in their head where they're trying to manage it and they like throw it to commercial breaks. It felt very much like Whoopi Goldberg trying to manage, like, what's-her-face McCain and Joy Behar on The View. (laughs) Like, throw it to commercial. It's like, because they're going to wolf out on each other. We also have, so we get this great thing about how the Orchid or Nah host, who is a woman, is very put upon by the powers that be at the network and is clearly second fiddle to Monty, our Chris Harrison America's stepdad. (laughs) But we get this, like, one of my favorite chapters. Okay. We need to talk about the structure of this book. Yes, we absolutely need to talk about the structure of this book. Because I I would break it into three parts. Yeah, we're we're stumbling all over ourselves because so much happens here. Mm -hmm. And it's a really weird structure for a romance novel. Yes. We get tons of perspectives. We get perspectives from characters who, like Monty... We go really deep into his character and his motivations and his backstory that leads us absolutely nowhere over the course of the novel. It's because this novel functions like a gas station on I-70. That is so true. People just come and go. Right. And so ostensibly this book is about our main character, Shi Sing the Asian alpha who needs to find love under the Communist Party one-child policy rule. And he's also working to overthrow the Communist Party in current-day China. It's it's a subplot. And our other main character, Monday Murphy, who is an orphan whose power was bound when she was born so she doesn't know she didn't know that she was a witch and she didn't know that she was a shifter a la discovery of witches and so we get very very sad backstories for both of our mcs which i actually want to get into we have the bachelor setting itself and then we have what i would call interstitials that are like previews for the next book but also trailers from the last books But also, like, I didn't enjoy a lot of this book, but I really enjoyed the -the behind-the-scenes look at the production. Some of my favorite chapters were Monty's backstory, where he's getting ready to go live on the air, and he's remembering that he ran into his mother at an airport, and he was really embarrassed. She was working at a restaurant in the airport, and he was reflecting on that and then later on one of the contestants comes on and does a comedic reading of a children's book for some reason redfish bluefish because she's trying to make herself interesting yeah and they do a straight up talent show as the introduction they did they, uh contestants on this show which is like the bachelor turn like just like a heightened version of what actually happens and he reflects on what it was like and that his mother was illiterate and it reminds him of what it was like to grow up in a household with a mother who couldn't read and very impoverished and like the amount of rage he feels it was moving and it was textured and it was riveting and it goes absolutely nowhere and I think like that's probably going to be our main critique for this book because this is a 
such a book of details and like the Monty thing with his mom, because not only is she illiterate and a single mom and impoverished with all of the trappings, but she loves her son, Monty. And so she's struggling through one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish in front of a social worker to keep Monty with her. Yeah. And so he's mad that this British, you know, basically daughter of an earl or whatever is doing a dramatic reading of this text and it throws him back into this moment. And everyone else thinks it's so funny. Everybody, including The Bachelor, and that he has to take himself out of this memory and then perform for this telecast. Yeah. It was it was a heartbreak. And really for me echoed the scene of Xi Jing, our our main character, Bachelor. The the opening of his mother bringing his sister into the world where she's screaming in childbirth. It's like total body horror. And there he describes that he sees lakes of blood in the birthing bed. And then suddenly his mother is literally dying. And then the doctor cuts his sister out of his mother's distended abdomen. And instead of a baby coming out of this horrific cesarean section, it's a salamander that claws its way out of his mother's abdomen, blinks its nicotining eyes, and just like crawls out of the dead mom and then like into his dragon grandmother and then dragon grandmother's like oh by the way it's a girl and his sister refuses to shift into human form she can shift into all sorts of animal forms um which is what like this book is full of like brilliant ideas i don't i haven't read a lot of shifter romances i loved that the animal inside was like a second party to the existence right um, our heroine, her mother is Navajo, and she grows up with her grandparent, her mother's parents. Her animal is a thunderbird. Super cool. Which is the same as like everyone else in her community. Um, our hero is a phoenix, which is kind of cute. Super cute. But the like, also the idea, of, like she describes like the feeling of having a bird inside her. And thinks of it as this second party, like the bird is angry or the bird is hungry or the bird is excited. She feels feathers under her skin because the bird wants to come out, right? Which I thought was such a, and like all of the characters who are shifters have this other relationship with their animal. And I think his sister is really interesting because I don't know if she, she doesn't have that othering of the animal. We don't go ever into her perspective. We do get a scene towards the end where she does shift into a human being. Um, and it's traumatic. She cries for the very first time. Yeah. And she ends up in a really bad place. Um, but I think like that's, fascinating like it's a book full of good ideas and yeah like you said Isabeau like it's just they don't really pan out in this text and I think it's and I think partly if you and I had started with the first one like I I imagine this is like jumping into the bachelor halfway through and not only halfway through the series but also halfway through a season where it's like all of the establishing stuff has already happened and I am not party to it. What makes that unique, I think, for a romance in a series is that we do not spend 
enough time with our hero and heroine getting to know them as a couple, which is both a function of the show that they're on, but also a function of this novel. I cared way more about the producers, the three sisters, as well as like the head of the network. Mm -hmm. I cared more about the three sisters, like rival coworker Melba and like what her whole deal was. The feng shui mother and daughter team were brand new to this book and we know that. Um, and they were more riveting. Like my one of my favorite chapters is the first episode chapter where you get all of the you get before that you get the choosing the contestants, which was felt like a lot of setup. But then once you get to the actual production of an episode, it was riveting and like the head hopping was uh, exhilarating in that way that I think like Judith McNaught can make head hopping feel like fun and not confusing and that's when this book really shone and I think like the strength of those really zoomed in chapters actually only emphasized like how messy other parts of the book were yes and I think part of the mess of this book is that it's not just pulling from the Bachelor franchise, it's pulling from a billion other franchises. Like the discovery of witches, where you have these three warring factions of magical creatures, shifters, witches, and like this kind of other of shifter witches who all hate each other, but also are the only like humans hate them too but they're also out so there's like less of a secrecy aspect so that felt like familiar they also have this like thing that must be from another book and I don't even know why it's in here where you have dark elves called the drow which I thought specifically came from forgotten realms and dungeons and dragons like I didn't think the drow belonged to anybody else like they're not they're not just like regular dark elves they're literally called the drow in this Um, so in, in so many ways, this felt like, um, a soup. Well, and there are also like tons of cultural references. Like, I think it's super ambitious for someone who's not Chinese and not Navajo to take on narrativizing those two specific cultures and making really specific references, like to the Kirin that we see a couple of times in the book. And... Also telling, like, the creation myth and, like, then trying to, like, make that work so that, like, all of these people were Thunderbird shifters. It's super ambitious because we're talking about that cultural aspect being central to our hero and heroine, but we're also tackling things like dark elves, and we're also tackling things like this whole other, like, witches and warlocks and gargoyles thing about, like, a heist And then we also have this reality television program. For shifters. That also plays on normal television. And then we also have a witch hunter who is an Islamic extremist. Adam. Which goes... Literally nowhere. Although we do learn that... Our main character, Monday Murphy, knows enough about the Quran to quote it back at him. Well, she's also able to, like, it is the, like, catalyst to get her to go on the show because they say they won't kill someone who's famous. Right. So you can get away from this guy. But then we also have a moment where the guy, like, after he's wounded from her escape of his clutches because he just thought she was a witch and didn't realize she was also a shifter... Where he comes to and he hears his like colleagues describe him as one of those. And he's like, what does that mean? And he passes out again. We never revisit. Right. Like he'll 
be in another book soon. I'm sure he has to be, but it's like... It felt like, and this is what I mean, I felt like I tuned in halfway through a season, halfway through a series. I mean, arguably it'd be like tuning in to like Game of Thrones season three, episode six. And so like, I understand that we chose book eight because that was the one that we chose. But for a series to be so reliant on all of the other books that came before it feels like this book can't stand on its own. It's got a lot of loose ends. Yes. And a lot of loose beginnings as well. But to your point about like this stew, so like our main character Monday is and her Navajo upbringing, which I really loved. Her grandparents are stunningly fun to hang out with also the part of the reservation that all the thunderbird navajo shifters live on it functions sort of like a rookery so like everybody lives in the high parts of the canyon which is super cool um but we're also still living in a world with white supremacy and racism because the Navajo shifters still live on the reservation. And her grandfather is constantly talking about the ways in which the white men have lied and harmed the Navajo. So then it also, I don't understand how this text is is working with those things in the same way that she's seeing our main character, the bachelor is working with communist China and it's very um, totalitarian one child policy and all of its other things. And it's really important that his grandparents get him out of China to be educated in the West so that he can start building his own army to eventually take over China politically question mark and we just get like a couple of scenes where we know that he has like handlers who follow him around but but we never get them like that could have been really funny yeah we we never get them we just know that they're there I guess like there's one time when he has to get a haircut because his handlers get into a physical altercation and like jostle a barber it's just it was really hard to follow and I I think there are some really good, like I said, I think there's some really good ideas. I think there are some striking character studies chapter by chapter. None of them were related to our main characters. And so like by the end where we get, like this is like a really soft shifter. Like they are immediately obsessed with each other, but they don't have the faded mate spark, which felt like a reference to something I didn't understand as well. And then... That doesn't really come into play, though, the fact that they didn't have a spark and, like, a physical, literal spark, by the way. There comes to be the end where he's giving – there's, like, this sweet interaction leading up to the conclusion where he keeps sending her notes. And she doesn't reply. And then at the end, she makes an acknowledgement of the notes, and he feels fulfilled by that. But he has these, like, violent verbalizations of his feelings, like talking about tearing out his own heart, how he would rather die than not be with her, that feel kind of unearned because we get, like, none of his passion from his perspective and none of the reciprocation from her. You just get, like, after she shows up for the talent show, they like each other, end of story. And also because this book is... I think most riveting when it's in the bachelor mood. But they don't meet each other until 60% of the way through the book. I also took note of that. Um, But one of the things that he's really afraid of because the producers have, because of 
the book previous to this where the bachelorette contestant ran away with one of the people halfway through the season and so there was all this money and it was like this whole big thing so the producers have created these rules that you have to abide by which is you don't get private time off camera with the bachelor ever and he's constantly trying to see her outside of this but she doesn't want to get kicked off because there's this crazy witch hunter who wants to kill her and she's like on the lam with her landlady and this orphan that she's picked up in LA. And so she really needs this gig and she needs to become famous. So she's not going to meet him outside of time, which makes him feel insecure about her feelings, which I felt like, okay, I can see where this is coming from. But he ascribes so much to this insecurity when she basically she totally explains it also the producer explains it to him where it's like we're not gonna have a repeat of what happened on last season guy you know what happened because they you you went to their engagement party or whatever like that's not happening this time and then there's this thing that he keeps doing where he's like i don't want monday to think that i like these other women how do i appear bored and uninvolved but still make good TV so that she doesn't think that I'm a lying liar who lies. But she never has that thought. No, and they also do all these weird... So they do, like, competitions, which, like, silly competitions are part of the Bachelor world, but they also do things like go on a bus tour, which (laughs) I can't think of, like, worse TV. (laughs) Than watching five women go on a bus tour. With one guy who's not allowed to talk to them. Because A, they're on a bus tour. You need to listen and pay attention. And B, because the producers won't let him, like, favor any one particular woman over another. I wonder if that's not, like, critique of The Bachelor and Bachelorette. Because so often people know immediately who they want to be with. And in fact, uh, not this current live season of The Bachelorette, but the previous one, The Bachelorette did leave the show halfway through because she was like, I don't need to do this whole rigmarole. That was one of the questions I was going to ask you about The Bachelor. Has this ever happened? Yes. Oh my God. Isabeau, this is going to make you so mad. What? I believe she was 35. Mm-hmm. So the theme was Mrs. Robinson. Oh my God. <laughs> Fucking ridiculous. But she ran away halfway through the season with a person. Oh, yeah. And, like, it was it was wild because she, like, met the guy. You know, he came out of the limo. And she was just giddy and staring at him. And Chris Harrison had to come out and tell her that she needed to focus on the other men during the, like, welcome. And it was like, oh, okay, so we know where that's going. So then they brought in another bachelorette who had fallen in love with a certain John Paul Jones, who I love over the course of Bachelor in Paradise. Um, So finding out that they hadn't worked out was hard for me. But now she's one of the two co-hosts, including Caitlin, our first Canadian bachelorette. She's the other co-host who's replaced Chris Harrison because Chris Harrison proved an untenable force. I'm sorry, this has become about The Bachelor. Another cool thing about the book is that the on-screen talent is also the off-screen production team, which is true for The Bachelor. I did love that. And I also loved there's this scene where they're not filming in front of a live audience because they're on this private island in the South China Sea. And so because the the first meeting of all the young women is this weird-ass talent show, the crew 
claps yeah and like reacts to the talents and yeah. so it immediately you know because you just think of like people running the cameras and people running the lights and like yeah. that it is a huge production team and I loved those human moments where like the crew laughs at the joke or like the crew like cringes when something happens in the uh weird elimination challenges and like the the there is an audience present but the audience is also making the show I like couldn't get over I, I loved it every time it happened or anytime that Monty like locked eyes with the camera guy like it felt so like real feels like the wrong word but it felt organic in the text in a way that was really enjoyable the bachelor and the bachelorette and the bachelor in paradise especially do things where like they'll have blooper reels at the end of episodes where you see like people dressed all in black with a walkie talkie and a headset interacting (laughs) with the people who are on camera one of my all-time favorites jj uh left bachelor in paradise Um, And at the end of his episode, they did a montage of where he would fart and just his handler getting so irritated with him every time he did it. That's what this book needed more of. Like somebody farting or burping and like, can we do another take? Can we do another take? I mean, if the whole book had been the show and like the behind the scenes and like people trying to like keep the, like it could have been narrowed way down. And I think it still could have kept its like integrity of being this really like representationally diverse text and I think like like I would like to read other books in the series to see if they do this because it's so like it's butterfly kissing this version of the book that I really want it to be and I don't I think there is a possibility that once we got to round eight it had like spiraled out into this way and so this book just needed to be able to like tighten things up or bring everything into the same spool to tie up the loose ends eventually. I think that's exactly what this book is. I think that's a beautiful metaphor that it is uh, the place where the spool meets all of its other ends and like where the rest of the sweater is going to be built from because what we learn at the end of this text is that there is this witch shifter baddie demagogue out of Iran who has set in motion a new world order by taking over Fort Knox, this yeah. place in England, this place in Germany. I was like, in Hong Kong. I suppose these are all financial centers and that none of the finances are about to happen. It's kind of sounded like the version of a female Elon Musk who just like took over everything with Bitcoin. And I was like, this is the new world order, which I wasn't because I didn't have the backstory of this particular baddie. I just understood that everybody was afraid of her, that she I don't know. I wanted to know more about her. Also, I think it kind of sucks that both the villains were Muslim. Yeah. Yeah. Also, when Adam showed up, I was like, oh, it's a weird spelling of Adam. And then when he was like, I'm going to kill a witch and I'm going to start like put my dagger in her throat. And I'm like, As cool. it says in the Quran, I was like, oh, shit. But before they said Quran, I super envisioned like a Paul Bettany white dude priest, like as pasty Catholic as you could get. And then it's like, gotcha. And I was like, oh. But this is worse, though. I know. And then I found out the other villain was, like, into Ron. I was like, oh. This book is, like, and in that way, reliant on the United States' current geopolitical enemies felt very, very weird and pro 
USA. Is that your weirdest part? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's like the like unquestioning villainy of the Chinese Communist Party. The unquestioning villainy of something like the vague like 24-hour news cycle idea of Middle East, right? Which is in itself like a constructed term. It like raised my hackles, first of all, to read about like someone talking about the villainy of the Communist Party and only the Chinese Communist Party and attributing it solely to the one child policy. It was like way more people died before that went into effect from the programs of famines and everything else before 1979 like there are a lot of reasons so it feels weird that we're attaching it to this one policy so specifically and also that it was always specifically referred to as communist and not like government right felt like weirdly intentional the unquestioning villainy of the political body of China's government, but also the, un like, the villainy is so clearly, like, tethered to America in the early 2000s, like, who we were portraying as villains in order to justify the continuation of, like, a failing imperialist project. Totally. And the, it's, like, even she Singh and his grandparents, who... His grandmother's a dragon. His grandfather's also a phoenix. He's a phoenix. They get to opt out of the one-child policy because they are rare and unusual shifters. Yeah. And they get to keep special privileges inside of the hierarchy of the Communist Party because of their magical privilege status. Yeah. And they're, like, constantly trying to, like, work to bring down the government. But they're also benefiting from the power that this oppressive totalitarian government gives them. Yeah. And, like, they don't do anything to better the lives of the other Chinese people living under the regime. Yeah. They just, like, take the privilege and they're like, guess we're going to fight from within and without. We'll send our son, our grandson to Oxford where he'll study to be a lawyer and not classical guitar because, like, that's also a stereotypical thing that we say about Chinese children. Opening line of chapter one gave me a great deal of pause. Grandmother said women squatted in fields and had babies all over the countryside every day, which was explicitly a part of anti-Vietnam propaganda, was one of the things they said. They were like, I saw a documentary about anti-Vietnam propaganda and how the U.S. was able to like justify their interference. And they told stories like that, which was like something of like, the Vietnamese people need us because look at how less advanced they are than us. White man's burden. In exactly. this case, it's not white man's burden. It's like a class burden or like a shifter privilege burden that yes. also comes with class But hierarchy. also we have to understand that this is written by an American author. Totally. Absolutely. I Again, because of who our quote unquote villains are, feels kind of unforgettable that the author is a U.S. centric yeah, there's something to the fact that our heroine is a Native American entering this narrative and that there is a problematization of American whiteness. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't think this book is interested in like extricating whiteness from Americanness, right? Because like the our idea of like America as like having this imperialist project is very much tied up in white supremacy. And 
it's also tied up in the like my grandmother's a Cherokee princess idea and I don't think this book goes that far no. but I think there is something I think in like trying to evade it mm-hmm. it does that thing where it ends up highlighting it I I don't know if I agree I don't know that I disagree either because I think what was striking to me about the scene where she she goes home to the Navajo is that we immediately also understand Monday Murphy as presenting as a black woman, that mm-hmm. she has cinnamon skin, that her hair is not like her grandmother's, and that this book, it seems to me, is walking a line around colorism and like other kinds of non-whiteness and how those marginal identities are forced to interact because of white supremacy. Like there's this moment where the social worker, they're, they're, the grandparents are taking charge of her um, and they're signing this contract and they discover that she has a monitoring chip and they say that this violates her rights as a Navajo citizen. This violates her rights as a shifter. Like you have to take it out. And she's like, well, she's going to be technically a ward of the state. And they're like over our dead bodies. And like they threaten this white social worker with violence about this surveillance chip inside their granddaughter And they never talk about her father or her mother or that interracial relationship. We see them in like a fever dream, but never go anywhere with that. Well, to speak to the colorism, so she, one of the challenges on The Bachelor is that you should be able to, not unlike in Harry Potter, (laughs) mount a mythical creature and be able to write it because the Kieran can sense evil and won't allow you to mount it. So whoever can't get on the Kirin will be eliminated. And when you ride the Kirin, it takes you through your memories and your subconscious and through the ether. And she's never met her father before. She has suspicions earlier in the book that he's part of this like Southern warlock family. That never goes anywhere, even though she was like initially going to try to seek him out. She instead goes to L.A. to become a songwriter. But as she's uh, writing this mythical creature, the scene wasn't Hainan Beach or the Arizona desert. It resembled every television jail cell she'd ever seen. At a desk in the corner sat a black man with a super thick, shoulder-spanning afro, reminiscent of her hair before her Thunderbird was released. And he's revealed to be her father. I think it's really interesting the idea that her hair changed when her Navajo identity was unbound. And like they couldn't figure out like why her mother had bound her. We don't know if her mother bound her or what the project was and like restricting her shifter identity. But she goes through this like physical process, which once again is like vivid and interesting But, like, there's something there, and that's, like, a pretty big thing to, like, sit in front of an audience and then leave it at that. Yeah. And, like, to be frank, knowing how little was worked out through this heroine and hero in their book, I don't know. I I don't have a lot of confidence that that stuff is going to get worked out in future texts. I agree. I think this is... A book of really good intention. Mm-hmm. I think the fact that we have uh, 
unequivocally Asian alpha uh, who's getting together with a native and black woman and that they like each other from the start and that like this is a world that isn't colorblind but exists right. in a world where uh, diversity exists and isn't celebrated but like just is like the world is yeah. diverse and I think that's really nice and they also have these shifter identities which is like you know whatever and I do I really do like that about this text but what this text highlighted for me almost as as a as a working through of the tropes of the genre in general it like has all the elements that I like. The main characters aren't alone. They have family, they have friends, they have like yeah. folks. I love that. I, I don't like it when main characters are isolated and that their romance has to like consume itself to make the book function. Yeah. I like that this book is um, diverse without, uh, like that That just is how the world works. And I, and I think that's nice. And it isn't necessarily like only a source of trauma. It can also be, a source of it also is a source of joy like you know they talk about the issues of of growing up like I don't think they ever explicitly call it a reservation but it's clear to anyone who understands like that's what's happening like a social worker is not allowed to like interact with it in the same way right and they talk about like the trauma surrounding that but they also talk about the joy they never talk about like anything um there's there's no tragedy pornography tourism here. Yes. Pornography is a strong word. I'm getting a little bit older, guys. I'm trying to be less. <laughs> I'm trying to throw the word pornography around a little less. But cool. like I, I don't think it's it's tragedy tourism. And I don't think it takes the easy way of like creating empathy through pain. No. In fact, there are like moments so our heroine is a songwriter, and the song that she sings on her guitar, which was her grandmother's that she's brought all this way, I, I looked it up, and I listened to it on YouTube, and it's this uh, R&B singer that I'd never heard of before, and I was like, well, now that's, you know, this book brought that to me, which was really nice. Yeah. And I like all of that. I also, I loved the Bachelor stuff. I, it makes me want to read romances about tv shows because yeah. i think that would be really fun um and it like it had quirky characters and like a grandmother who needs to be soothed and like i mean it, it honest to goodness it even has like letters right oh my god when the fucking i was like well here i am i'm gonna find my sexiest part now that we have the letters right like it it hits all of my tick boxes yeah. for a romance yeah. and yet and yet so what was your what was your sexiest part I have a weird one. Oh, <laughs> it's a weird book I get yeah I get that uh so my sexiest part was on the bachelor show they go to a water park how gross <laughs> so gross and then it's like it's being filmed and so like uh but there's this can you imagine the nightmare of filming a reality dating show in a water park in a no absolutely not but there is something so teenagey about faded mates and the way that a water park makes sense right and the way that she's saying constantly thinks about monday murphy 
it, it feels so teenage dreamy where it's like he's consumed. It's all he's thinking about. He's never really dated anybody else. Like there's like he feels like a 16 year old who's just discovered the prettiest girl in his math class. And she's so much cooler than him. And he just like wants to sing. He even says something like, I just want to sing songs with her. Oh, it's like the corniest stuff. Yeah. Oh, here it is. I want to be low-key obsessed with her, but not overprotective and jealous that I become too much. Someone who's spontaneous and joyful, carefree and easygoing, and has an adventurous side. That's who he's looking for on his bachelor experience, which is like the teeniest thing to say. Do you know, I think you hit on something so key about shifters, which is it does like bring that there is something very like adolescent very teenage very first love about it that I think is like actually a really important hinge point for it and its popularity because I think so often like I think about that Nico case song that teenage feeling and like I think there's something like what one of the things that's so special about it is that it, it you don't get it back like it's impossible um And I think what this book does is it has that real conscientiousness because I was like, why do I like this as a shifter novel? And I think it's because it really leans on that goofy, like, like really excited, giddy teenage feeling as opposed to the whole like, which is also a part of being that like obsessiveness, which is also very much a part of being a teenager, that aggressiveness, which is also very much a part of being a teenager. It also leans on that like sweet, silly hopeful part of it where like all of the angst of like angst angst is part and parcel of our main characters but it's part and parcel of their animal right and so then it's not part of their consciousness also you don't get the weird bestiality stuff because you're like the animal's like a whole other thing Right. right and so i think where like you can look back on your teen love and feel your butterflies about it but if you were to take it into the adult world it's super problematic yeah shifters get to tread that line because they get beast and person so you get to have all the teenage big feels and your animal feels them and you get to consciously look at them and so this water park scene he just wants to be around her but he can't and they finally get to see each other like mostly half naked because they're at a water park so they're in a swimsuit whole point constantly trying to get someone to go to a water park to a public (laughs) or like some gross lake (laughs) it's like let's let's be in swimsuits next to each other will we will we sit next to one another we probably will not stand still next to one another no we're gonna be in the water like touch each other no (laughs) We're going to tread water around each other. Yeah, Yeah, we'll we'll gently paddle near one another, viciously splash. Yes. uh, And then cry about it later. Absolutely. And a fun time will be had by all. Anyway, so they're at this water park and he has to go down the big water slide with everybody. But he saves Monday for last. And she has this thing where she like puts her hips in the V of his legs And, you know, it doesn't even get into, like, how pornographic it could have been. Like, he could have had a hard-on that could have been in the cleft of her butt cheeks. Yeah. Not here. Uh, Shay August kept it PG for yeah. us. For whatever reason, I wouldn't have been mad. But, like, it was nice that it was just, like, this very tame scene where she, like, was in the V of his legs. And it was just this side of sexual. I, uh... 
I feel like the, there is one sex scene in it, but it's very like smoke curling from a candle. Totally. Curtains billowing. Like it's it's not really like a, this is a, a sweet shifter. This is a sweet shifter romance, which I don't often read sweet shifters. Sweet, like they're often very steamy, the shifter romance. Yeah. Well, I think like even beyond steamy, like I think like a shifter romance is often used as an excuse to like write erotica. Yeah. Uh, my sexiest part are one of our three sister producer matchmakers. As producers of the show, like apparently like every alpha has to get matched on reality television, which is wild. So they have this upcoming alpha who's a dragon Mm -hmm. and she has been working with them. They have to work with them and train them and talk to them about things like dating because they're from like such a weird social. I assume the book doesn't make this explicit. They're from such a weird social situation that they don't really date. So she's doing a practice date. With our hero, um, they're going to dinner. They're also talking about other things. And this dragon she has a crush on walks in. Mm-hmm. And once again, that teenage feeling, like it's from her perspective, although I'm already more invested in her because the producer pieces are so snappy and funny and like rich, even like the weirdly competitive thing between the sisters. So good. Yeah. And like, it's it's just a delight. And so I'm already like more invested in her than our hero. And then this guy walks in and his like, his like, his flirtatiousness that our hero understands as being like quite out of character for a dragon shifter. It was just such a pleasure to read and like her getting nervous and trying to maintain her professionalism around him. That was a delight. That was. That was a good part. Romance or nomance? It's a nomance for me. And which sucks because, like, I like I wish I could, like, pull, I could, if I could go chapter by chapter, right? Some of them would be, like, big womances. But majority of them would be nomances. There's too much going on. There's too many loose ends. And we came into it, I think, at the wrong time. I think this is probably something we should have started with the first book. I think so. I, I mean, I agree, although I would say that this is this is a no man's for me, but there are some amazing lines like at one point, uh, one of the producers is taking um, the other producers to task because they're like yelling at each other. And he goes, this is a primetime recap show with kids and grannies watching fucking kids and fucking grannies, not the opening segment of the Shifter Federation Wrestling League. And I'm like, I I loved that. The joy and humor of a producer coming out and just having an expletive-filled rant to tell people to be family-friendly is is a it's a good joke. It's such a it's a good joke. It's funny, but I think there's also like not only are there loose ends, not only does this book feel rushed story-wise, especially towards the end, it also feels rushed in the sense that, like, I don't think it was proofread. Yes, there are uh, grammatical mistakes more than more than five. More than, like, uh, it got to a point where, like, it, it distracted me. So be aware of that. I think this is one of those things where I understand when we get into conversations about romance and we make the delineation between mainstream publishing and indie publishing. Sometimes when I talk to people who want to get into indie publish, like want to get into reading indies, 
um, they feel I've heard it said that they feel like it's drinking from a fire hose. Like yeah. there's too much. It's the wild, wild west. It's hyper unregulated. True, 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 true. And I and I and I feel like this series might if this is an indication of how this series functions, this might be in part of that. And I based on this book alone, I would not recommend it. It's not a woe. But what I will say is that if you're looking for an indie and you've got Kindle Universe, we found Jude Lucens. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's like this book has like is representative of like all of the stuff people are fearful of. And look, I think like sometimes when you read an indie published thing, there are going to be grammatical errors for the most part. Like it's not a big deal and just keep reading. Like we're all human beings and we can't afford like, you know, that that's like what you get. You also get like character studies and like a writer has time to like put in those character studies, which, you know, I don't think necessarily a mainstream romance would allow the kind of breathing room would not allow the kind of humidity, I guess, yeah. that would go into blossoming something like that. And this book has all the humidity for an idea. Like, it's full of really, like, fresh, exciting ideas. Inside. Like, the character studies of everyone other than hero and heroine are so rich. I agree. This feels like, if you listen to our book, our, our episode about mermaid's kiss yeah this is in that keeping and i think a little bit i think the ideas are a little bit stronger yeah and the uh rah rah america stuff is much quieter yeah still there but it feels like a like a subconscious thing i but I, I still think like the messiness of the novel undermines its brilliance yes and it is difficult to read because of that right there were actual times where I had to go back, reread the chapter, yeah. ender, and then try to figure out where I was both in time and whatever. But this also makes it feel like, as a reader experience, that's unenjoyable. And if I went back and I read all of the seven that preceded this in order, I imagine that a lot of this would have been ameliorated that way. Mm-hmm. But that's a major time investment. Yeah. So kudos if that is what you want to do and like this is a world that you know is definitely worth checking out the bachelor stuff is effervescent um i might go back and check out the one before this where the bachelorette ran away with her bachelor halfway through the season because that sounds like fun but yeah yeah no mance no mance all right anything else you want to say you nope all right also, I would say the Bachelor franchise uh, is a no man's. Although the Bachelorette this season has been really interesting and feels like a return or a refresh of something kind of special. And, yeah, if you uh, want to know more about this, um, the first Black Bachelorette just came out with a memoir. Uh, she's been spilling a lot of tea. There are some great memoirs from this franchise. Uh, Yeah, so miss me with that. Hot Takes Helpful Tidbits and A Few Hard Truths by Rachel Lindsay um, has just come out. With that, loosen your stays. But never your principles.
Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabeau. That's me. And Morgan. That's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzac. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media slash podcast. Until next week. Mwah. <laughs>